Saks Afridi is a New York-based Pakistani-American artist who explores the dichotomy of being an insider-outsider. I consider myself in many ways an insider-outsider, which is being comfortable in all places, feeling like an insider in, in all places, but then, you know, knowing that you are an outsider as well, or sometimes made to feel like that. And just sort of walking that balance is is what it's all about. And if you're comfortable doing that, then then that's that's sort of the sweet spot. Through his work, he recreates the historical and cultural narratives to highlight social issues. He collaborates with beavers, painters, and food vendors to address the problems around identity, Islamophobia, and social justice. If you look at Jackson Pollock, it's no different. You know, it's like, well, anybody could have painted that or anybody could have thrown, or you have to understand context and you have to read the book with context. You can't just take a quote out and say, kill the infidels, because it's connected to a bunch of other things. And that's not what, what it's saying. Some of these issues we've already talked about with so many other guests, so it will be very interesting to get Sack's perspective on these issues. Sachs is in the studio with me to talk about a lot of these issues. This is Immigrantly, and I'm your host, Sadia Khan. Welcome, Sachs. I am so excited. And we are finally doing this, right? Yeah. Uh, so we ske- rescheduled it twice. I'm sorry about no, that. In fact, three times. <laughs> yes. But one time it was because of me. And then it was because of your scheduling issues. So you are a lot busier than I am. And I apologize. For that. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. I, I have a very hectic schedule because I have a full-time job. Hmm. And then I have a full-time art practice. And then I have a full-time family. That's three full times. So that's three times I was late. So or I had to reschedule. You had to reschedule. And the good thing is you didn't cancel. No, yeah. of course not, because this is important. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, let's start with your name. Your first name, Saks. Sakib. Sakib. Yeah. I did this episode a few months back. It's called What's in a Name? Yeah. And it's about how immigrants change their names and yeah. make them more westernized or sure. anglicized when sure. they come to the U.S. to make it easier for other people to pronounce Easier to remember, that. yeah. Right. Yeah. But then your last name is Afridi. Damn proud of it. Yes. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, it's like people who grew up in Pakistan or even Afghanistan know that it represents an ethnic identity. It represents a tribe. So I'm sure you're very proud of that. But how many times has that name been butchered? Afridi is not. Saqib was butchered. Really? That's why I changed it. Oh my God, that's interesting. Yeah. And I haven't like legally changed it or anything, but I spelled it or spell it S-A-K-I-B. I was born, so I was born with S-A-Q-I-B. And then at some point in middle school, I decided that I wanted it to be grammatically correct because there should be a U after a Q, so I changed it to S-A-Q-U-I-B, and that didn't work so well. And then I just moved it to S-A-K-I-B, and I was S-A-K-I-B for the longest time. And then here in the U.S., everybody would just call me Saqib, and that just got under my skin. And after about maybe 10 or so years of it just, or longer, of just getting under my skin, or people just having a hard time remembering it. I think that's what it was. I, I, I like to think of myself as a, you know, a, a fairly memorable person. <laughs> uh, so when I would get people who I'd met a couple of times, you know, 
through work or whatever, they would be they would look at me with like, "Hey, nice guy whose name I can't remember." And that would happen all the time, and I kind of just got sick of it, and as I was, you know, just one day a friend of mine, Sofieli, says, "Why don't you just change it to Sax? It's simple. We have a friend Shaquille who's Shax." And she goes, you can just be sax. And I thought, you know, that's that that's a great idea. I'm just like really sick of it. And so the next day I changed my emails, my business cards, my social profiles, and nobody's forgotten my name since. So it was really a branding exercise. It's, uh, you know, another way to say it, it's my stage name. And uh, as an artist, I get to have a stage name. It's interesting because, so I have two girls and I have named them Palvasha and Zermina. Extremely ethnic names. Give your daughters hard names. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Listen, I'm all for it. I've I've definitely felt the guilt of changing it. Although Zermina is easier to pronounce. Nobody messes it up. Yeah. Palvasha, Palvasha is, is hard. butchered yeah, all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah, Palvasha. And she's, she's like come up with all these different concoctions of it. And sometimes she doesn't even tell me what she's calling herself anymore. And... To me, it boils down to why should we change our names? Why should the onus be on us rather than, you know, be on the people who, who need to learn our names? We learn Gora names, don't we? Yeah, but it's a two-way street. Hmm. And it's, you know, we're not the only ones who have done this. Ralph Lauren's name is Ralph Lifshitz. Hmm. So the artist Rothko, his name is Rothkowitz. So, like, he changed his name because there were too many Jewish artists. So people do change their names sometimes for memorability, sometimes for branding, like in my case, but other times just to assimilate. I did not do it for assimilation in, in any way. I pretty well assimilated in wherever I, I, I am, whether it's in Pakistan or here or anywhere else. But um, there, there is, there's a certain amount of guilt that goes with it. Charmaine Obed, you know, is a... Is a friend and she was always like oh, what's with the sax what, what, are, you, what yeah. are you doing what's with sax I'm just going to call you Saqib I'm not going to call you sax and there's many people in Pakistan who refuse to call me Saqib uh, sax and that's cool I, I'm, I'm both I'm you know it's it's fluid yeah that's true and I think for Pakistanis especially it's more like a, a colonial hangover we don't want yes. because of our colonial yeah. history yeah, yeah, yeah. People we think, are anti-colonialism right, right. in every form right, and way right. so even a name that reminds us of that we will react right people think I did it to uh, anglicize but no it's just like they were butchering it yeah, it was pain in the ass and, and it was just the pain in the ass yeah you haven't lived the, you haven't lived it you don't know yeah so. <laughs> let's talk about your childhood your dad was in Pakistan International Airlines yeah PIA PIA right and because of that you traveled a lot mm-hmm. is there one place you still would like to call home though because you've been a global citizen you've lived in different places yeah I don't I don't think we have to have one place to call home hmm. I, I think that definition of home is, uh, you know, speaking of fluidity, is also fluid. I, I I have two homes. I have Pakistan as a home, and I have New York City as a home. New York City is not America. New York City is its own nationality. I have a I have a t- sweatshirt that says New York is a nationality, <laughs> and uh, so uh, New York and Pakistan both don't consider a, either one more home or less home. They're they're kind of equal. Pakistan is holds a much, not much, but holds a. a a dear, a special, a much more special place because of uh, emotionally. 
but uh, New York is uh, where my soul is. And in Pakistan, where did you grow up? So I've in Pakistan. I, so I grew up moving countries every two to three years. Oh. So I never really lived in one place for longer than that. So I'll just give you a quick chronology, and then you'll know. I was born in Peshawar, huh. like you. <laughs> I wasn't born in Peshawar. Oh, okay. I was born in Rawalpindi. So born in Peshawar, lived there for five years. Then we moved to Libya for a year. Then we moved to Sri Lanka for three years. Then came back to Peshawar for three years. After which we went to Saudi Arabia for three years. Then came back to Rawalpindi. Uh, in Pakistan, and uh, lived there for a year, and then moved to Islamabad for two years, and then we moved to Johannesburg for a couple of years, wow. and then while well, I lived there for a year, I came back to Pakistan for about six, eight months or so to Rawalpindi, and then we moved to Dubai for about a year, and then I came to the U.S. for college, and then in the U.S. I lived in Connecticut, Philadelphia for a short, short. Stint, like, I don't even, you know, not really lived, just stayed there for a while. And New York City, twice, uh-huh. uh, San Francisco. And how has that changed your outlook on life? Has it made you more tolerant of other cultures, religions, ethnicities? 100%. 100%. I, I feel I'm just a much more flexible and open person because of that. Because I was thrown into different cultures and school systems and social dynamics to deal with at a fairly young age and just forced to adapt, it makes it, makes it easy. And that's why I, I have a series of works and I consider myself in many ways an insider-outsider, which is being comfortable in all places, feeling like an insider in, in all places, but then, you know, knowing that you are an outsider as well, or sometimes made to feel like that. And just sort of walking that balance is is what it's all about. And if you're comfortable doing that, then then that's that's sort of the sweet spot. And does it also help in your marriage? Because you're married to a Palestinian-American, yes. different ethnic identity, different religious identity. Same values. Uh, same values. So I interviewed Susie, yeah. um, your wife. Yes. She's a comedian. Her episode was one of my favorite episodes. A, because I giggled throughout. I couldn't stop laughing. And one thing that I noticed about her was that she she's a big fan of yours, by the way. She did not stop talking about you. And I it piqued my curiosity about who you are. Because she, like, I, I don't know if you've listened. To, I'm sure you've listened to her episode. Yes, I have. I have. And she talked about you constantly. I talk about her constantly, too. Yeah. So We're, we're both each other's biggest PR machines. Hmm. So how does that work in, in your family? Because I remember she mentioned something like parenting styles. And she thought that, ad, like, as an Arab mom, her parenting style is very different from your mom's parenting style. Mm-hmm. And because yeah. Desi moms are a bit, like... Um, crazy maybe uh, and uh, my she... mom's not crazy she's just very disciplined and determined and I think she did a fantastic job and Susie will be the first to uh, admit that in fact she's uh, always thanking my mother for the way she raised me because she, she says you gave me you know you, you gave me the best gift yeah, but do you think Desi moms are more, uh, as you said, more disciplined uh, in terms of, you know, kids' education? and A hundred percent. Sometimes to a fault. But in contrast to Arab moms, they feel even more. In contrast to just, uh, you know, parents who are on top of their game, 
They're not. They're just parents who are on top of their game. And Arab parents are, let's face it, mostly, I don't know, it's a blanket statement. I know many Arab parents who are on top of their game too. So They're more relaxed. They're, they, they, are, they are more relaxed. There is a certain guilt, but, you know, having lived in New York for a dozen years, it's no different than Jewish guilt. Hmm. It's, it's, it's the same. Jewish moms are no different than Desi moms. They're like, ah, oh, you never call, you never, you know, you never write. Oh, you know, so all, all, all that, you know, the Desi guilt stuff that we get, it's no different than Jewish guilt. And not just that. I think it's also the way we want our kids to learn. I think that the learning process, education itself, like I see having these conversations with my daughters and I, I just push them more than sometimes I feel guilty about doing that all the time. But then my immigrant mentality kicks in because for me, it's important that my kids do well in America because that's why my husband and I are here. You're here because you competed and you, you know, you, you ran the race and you, you came through. So the, it, it is a competition. And, and we Desis have a sense of competition that, that we channel into hard work. Right. Arabs have a sense of competition that they channel into their egos. Now, <laughs> I'm not saying Baksanis or Desis don't have egos. If you, if, if you look at our political system, <laughs> it's entirely egos. So it's just a matter of channeling into hard work. And that's, and, and, and that's how we define success. The thing with Desi parenting and the thing I don't like about it is that we define success by money. And yeah. we define success by, you know, how successful you are in life based on how many homes you own or uh, and notice I said plural with homes yeah. because then the ah oh, my son has a house here and a house there <laughs> and an apartment in Manhattan <laughs> <laughs> But do you think it's more I to do with... don't have any of those, no, but just to be clear. <laughs> don't you think it has to do with immigrant mentalities? Because I feel like people, native-borns, are more relaxed. They are more... They don't have anything to prove. Their parents have done all the proving for them. And that's that's where we have to push. Because they, they still have to prove, they still have to, you know, run the race in this world. Saqib, let's talk about your work. Your project, Space Mosque, combines mysticism with sci-fi. Why did you decide to combine these two very disparate fields? I am not a big fan of sci-fi, but the idea of, you know, mosque, like Sufism or mysticism combining with sci-fi was so intriguing. Mm. And I've seen the sculpture that you have created, and it's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I've created a, a number of sculptures around it. But before getting into that, just let's talk about the, the concept of it or the theme of it. I don't think they're that far apart. They're, they are connected. They both search for the eternal. A lot of science fiction, if you look back at, you know, early science fiction of Star Trek, it, 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 they were all voyages to go where no man has gone before. And in spirituality, we've always searched for the, the unknown, the divine, and we've always looked towards the stars for that because that's, that, that's where the heavens are or that's, you know, that's where uh, the, the Almighty lives or uh, is present. Or, and if you look at Greek mythology or if you look at any, any different 
religion, they've always looked towards the stars. So I think there's a connection of science fiction and, and spirituality that way. There's also a connection of, I like to work in this area of Sufism and science fiction. And I think there's a, a connection there as well because Sufism is, a lot of it is about self-realization, self-actualization. And in order to get self-actualization, you have to be self-realized and you have to look inside yourself and you have to find love within yourself. And when you find love within yourself, you go out and you seek love in the form of God, right? So God, if God is love in, in Sufism, which God is, then how do you find God by practicing love? And you do that with others. You do that with yourself. And more importantly, you don't treat God or look at God as a as a punitive God. You look at God as not even a he or a she, but as the all-knowing entity to love. That was just the connection between science fiction and Sufism or and spirituality in general. But the idea of Space Mosque was really sort of bore out of this question that uh, I read this quote once, uh, if all your prayers were answered, would it change the world or just yours? And that started this idea of Space Mosque, where like, wow, what? Built it around this narrative of this parafictional global phenomenon that happened in the near past, where due to the arrival of this mysterious spaceship from the future, every human being in the planet got one prayer answered every 24 hours. And during that time, that phenomenon, good things happened and bad things happened. And one of the things that happened was that, you know, everybody started praying for money. And so when everybody prays for money, what happens? The inflation happens. The, war, the, the whole world erupted. Everything in the grocery stores were, you know, they, uh, it cost thousands and thousands of dollars. So the global currency changed and it no longer was about money, but prayer became the de facto global currency during that time. And this is a, a, a fictional narrative I've, I've created. I call it parafiction because it's made to look real. Uh, and I talk about it as though it was real. And so at that point, greed and morality were at constant war. Because if everyone's praying for themselves, who's praying for others? Others. Why did you choose that narrative? Why did you choose the narrative that everybody will pray for money? That's a study of human nature. That's just greed. That's that's what we would do. Um, really? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people would... I had to start off with. So I, I have... Uh, I, I kind of have it all broken down. I'm working on it right now as a structured story and everything. So there's different part, times during which of the phenomenon and what happened initially... A lot of people prayed for money, and that totally disrupted uh, the global economy. But then things settled down, and people started praying for other things beyond that. But then people also discovered that children's prayers were accepted and being received with a much higher rate of return than adult prayers because there's a sense of intention and uh, purity that children have that adults don't because... Our prayers are infused with ego and, you know, jealousy and things like that. This is such an interesting concept. When I think about prayer, to me, it's realization of one's limitations as human. For me, it's a very humbling experience because as a human, I feel like I'm recognizing the fact that 
I cannot do everything on my own. And there is this, as you said, divine being, he or she. You're talking about Uh, submission. Submission, right? And I just ask or seek his help. But it's very interesting how you bring in greed into this. And that is another perspective that I never thought about, especially with prayer, because to me, it's so selfless. The act of praying is so selfless. Well, it's submission followed by requests, because in prayer, you also ask God for things. And the the the, the dua portion of the of the prayer, right? So where it, you're bargaining, where you where, where you're asking for stuff, and you <laughs> you've got a Christmas list that you're going through in your head, like uh, God, give me this, God, give me this, God, give me this, God, give me this, da, 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 right? So in that sense, you 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 are asking the Almighty for 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 something in return for your submission. It's a it's a bargain. It's a deal. It's another thing I love about Sufism. It doesn't have that. There's no bargaining in deals this like that. There's, there's selflessness. There's love. So that doesn't exist. There's no reward system where if you do good, you know, you get to heaven, you do bad, you don't, that kind of thing. So don't really believe in that. But uh, but greed really come, came into play in the, in, in the narrative. And so when people discovered that children's prayers were being answered more and more, mm. this gave rise. The corporations saw this. And this gave rise to the prayer farms. They started partnering, corporations started partnering with orphanages and started recruiting children from around the world and started creating these corporate prayer farms. And the corporate prayer farms then were the mechanism through which people's prayers who weren't being answered because of their bad intentions, not all prayers were answered, only prayers with good intentions were answered still. So they could use this as a channel. So politicians, other religions, you know, people who needed to get something done would do it through this way. So that completely changed the system of the world. And so hence greed and morality were a constant war. So it could be made into a TV show or I'm a book. Are you working on that right now. Oh, great. Yeah. So we will see it hopefully soon. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. I'm in, in the thick of it right now. Mm-hmm. writing stories and thinking of this world deeper. I've already been working on it for a couple of years now, but there's so much more to go. So, yeah. So this is a good segue into another project that you did somewhere in America. And it's an exciting project where you use transliteration of Jay-Z's song. Uh, yeah. And you basically replace Quranic verses with it to point out, in your view, flaw. And in reading, in practicing religion the way we practice religion right mm-hmm, now, especially mm-hmm, for Muslims, mm-hmm. because they read Quran in an alien language, which is Arabic. Not all Muslims are Arabs. <laughs> and I agree with you there. But it, it got me thinking uh, about something else. And here's, here's my, my theory. For a believer, it is about divinity in word. Right. So the idea of preserving Quran in its original form and having it as reference was one of the intended consequences of why it was preserved in Arabic. Now, so when I was growing up, I tried to read it in Arabic. I couldn't. My father reads it in English. So language itself or sanctity of language was never something that I thought about. That's great. You're very lucky. Yeah, probably. Although I, I was told later that I committed a sin by not doing that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the, the unintended consequence of all of this is that Arabs and the language itself, Arabic, has become, have become de facto custodians or representatives of Islam. 
Yeah. And that's what bothers me a lot. And even to this day, somehow Saudi Arabia is I know is the representation. So it is yeah. so annoying. Do you think this this project? First of all, what was the response like to this project, and what were you trying to get from it? And did, were you able to achieve whatever your goal was? Yeah. So this project was also a collaboration that I did with uh, another New York-based artist, Kinza Najum. Her and I both went through the same experience. Like, yeah, you know, but we're like we're made to read the Quran as kids. Huh. Gotta read it. Gotta read it. <laughs> and so we did and finished it. Yay! Party. And there's literally a party afterwards. Yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> and Quran Khatam party done. Uh, but the child has no idea what he or she has read. Nothing. And most people don't. But they'll but they'll quote it. Those who actually read a translation in Urdu, in English, in whatever language, you know, good for them. Because that's what they're supposed to do. But honestly, even when I read it in English, it is so metaphorical. It's like reading Shakespeare. I don't understand what I'm reading. The Quran is the most abstract work ever. Exactly. So unless you have like explanation for every verse that you're reading, yeah. you cannot understand what you're reading. And that's why sometimes it... It's confounding to see. And you can't take it literally. Literally. You, you cannot, cannot take it literally. And there are so many non-Muslims quoting Quran and saying, oh, so Quran says to kill infidels. <laughs> and I'm like, as a Muslim, I can't understand it. How, how do you to understand it? I mean, you can't even. It's as abstract as like, if you look at Jackson Pollock, it's no different. You know, it's like, well, anybody could have painted that or anybody could have thrown or you have to understand context and you have to read the book with context. You can't just take a quote out and say, kill the infidels because it's connected to a bunch of other things. And that's not what what it's saying. But it's unfortunate that Islamophobes and fundamentalists both do the same thing. Of course. They are so similar in so many ways. So that's what the work is about, because it's this miseducation of blind faith mm. that it's commenting on. And being an American, I've seen how there's a sense of, I guess, in a way, a new gospel being formed, you know, that has formed culturally. And that's that's the gospel of hip hop. And the gospel of hip hop is revered in a big way. And so I wanted to make that comparison. And so I was listening to Jay-Z's album at the time, <laughs> and this sort of contrast just struck that, yeah, this, could, this might as well be Greek. Like what we're reading in the Quran might as well be Greek. Exactly. So let's replace the old gospel with the new gospel with just with Jay-Z lyrics. And the lyrics are also... Uh, you know, commenting about the state of affairs in America as well. So it's a, it's about the state of affairs here, but also about the state of affairs of the miseducation of blind faith. Did you, in fact, show it in Pakistan as well? It's never been shown in Pakistan. It's been showed in the—there's a collector who owns it, who owns an edition of it in the UAE. Hmm. And there's also a prominent journalist and— Professor Sultan Sudur Qasimi, who was giving a talk, and in the talk he showed a slide with 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 this image on it, and that's that's how the collector saw it. 
and then reached out to us and acquired the piece. But he showed it in the talk as an example of miseducation of blind faith. So I think people resonate with it, especially people who have been made to read the Quran without understanding it. Was there any backlash? No. No, not at all. And there shouldn't be. There shouldn't there's, be, yeah. there, there's not a single word on there that is of the Quran. The, the only Quranic reference there is the visual. It just looks like thick old manuscript. And it's got the ornamentation of a Quran. But the letters are simply transliterated Arabic letters. And that's what artists are supposed to do. And I think one of the drawbacks of how Muslims are practicing their religion right now, the current state of affairs is that we don't question our religion anymore. And we don't let our artists do their, you know, creative expression of what, how they see religion or culture. And, and that's such an important exercise. We're afraid. And you should be able to question certain things. I'm not, not go as far as, you know, drawing <laughs> doodles of the Prophet Muhammad. But you can, you can explore. You're allowed to explore. We're, we're human. And, and, and artists, our job is to explore and question. And not necessarily to give you answers, but to question and instill questions in your mind. You know, you've done so many interesting projects because as I was doing research, I came across so many things that I wanted to talk about. And it seems Thank like you. it's it's all about your projects, but there are so many interesting. And I want to bring up another one, Hava Sandals. Yay! Oh, my God. That's one of my favorites because you've created this winged version of Peshawari Pakistani Chappal. Yes. It's a um, rendition of Peshawari Chappal. And it's expensive, by the way, because I was trying to, I was like, I was looking up, like I looked up not online. For art, not for art, they're not. Yeah, you're right. They're, they're only 100 in the world. Are they like light? Because when I see them in pictures, I can't figure out if they are light enough for me to wear and walk. Oh, God, yeah. They they're, are. They are. They're, they have a sneaker sole. They're, mm. they're as light as sneakers. But they are so beautiful. Thank you. And then they're gender neutral, right? They are. Yes, they yeah. absolutely are. And th they're a beautiful creation that I'm very proud of that Marhor and I uh, worked on together. And those guys are amazing. They are a shoe, a handcrafted shoe company based in Pakistan. And I partnered with them. The idea for the sandal first was part of the Space Mosque project. Hmm. And the story behind the sandal starts with uh, a, a story of a 12-year-old boy during the time of the phenomenon who lived in Peshawar, Pakistan, whose parents were separated. And the boy prayed to spend more time with his estranged father who lived in the town of Kohat. Hmm. And so he prayed to spend more time with his father. And the next morning when he woke up, his Shaori chapels had grown wings. And so he would go and see his father every day after school and then come and fly back home. And when the vessel left, the sandals st stopped working. But uh, uh, at the show, at the, at the Space Moss show that I had earlier this year at Icon Gallery, there's uh, a sculpture, sculptural versions of these sandals. And they have much larger wings. Mm. Those aren't really wearables. But I made those with Marhor and uh, my experience with them was so fantastic. And the uh, story of Wakas and Sidra, the, the couple who founded 
Mahor and then later Adams, uh, which I'm wearing as well, by the way, was I, I just loved it so much that we just developed this connection, this this immediate bond of friendship. And we started talking about the idea of a limited edition, smaller winged version uh, that were wearables. And they make a sneaker chappal, which is so comfortable. They basically took the rubber tire sole that exists on all Peshawari chappals and swapped it out with a foam sneaker sole. And that immediately makes the chappal much lighter and much more comfortable. Yeah, because Peshawari chappal, and my father used to wear it, he still wears it, my brother growing up wore it, and... It doesn't, it is not the most comfortable chapel. You have to break them in. You have to, right? Yeah, but the Hawa sandals don't it's really take, it's different. It's they, very different. The, uh, they don't uh, take much breaking in. I I wore mine the first day and I walked 9,000 steps in Manhattan. Wow. And I had a small blister towards the end of the day, but that's, you know, that's, that, that, that's, that's, normal. That, that's normal after breaking in uh, any shoe. But they're just so comfortable to walk in and uh, the wings make them feel even uh, look even lighter. They don't feel lighter, but it's it's not a heavy shoe at all. So it's handcrafted leather with this sneaker sole and they come in white and tan and uh, there's a hundred of each. And are you planning to add any more colors? There are plans of doing another color in the summer, yes. Hmm. Is it a tribute to your ethnic identity because Peshawari Chappal is so quintessential Pathan thing. Yeah. I somehow there's, there's so much pride in it. Yeah. And so I was like, when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, now, you know, people globally can wear these chappals that we, like our parents have been wearing for so long. And by the way, who is your audience? Because you've done so many different projects and every project has some cultural context to it. Who are you trying to uh, connect with? People who live in both my homes. Hmm. So people of of New York or America uh, or the world and people of South Asian origin, people of Middle Eastern origin, people of any origin who are empathetic with the idea of being an outsider and uh, having felt what that feels like. You were recently in Pakistan. Um, yeah. I follow you on Instagram and you were posting such interesting stories. And it's interesting because when I was growing up in Pakistan, the only few places I would be in was one was Lahore, where I grew up. And then every summer and winter, we would go back to our village to yeah. celebrate Eid and stuff. Right. And that was the, that's the extent of geography of Pakistan that I understand, which is which is a sad thing. But you captured it so beautifully. You were in Karachi and then you were in your village and you were in Islamabad. How was that experience like? Can you talk a, a little bit about your travel to Pakistan this time? This trip, yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this trip was a very special, I just, uh, we were just there uh, in uh, November. So about a month ago. And the same artist I was talking about earlier, Kinza Najim, who uh, her and I did the um, Somewhere in America piece. By the way, I just interviewed her recently. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's she's, great. she's a great artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So her and I did this collaboration, a collaborative, interactive installation, sculptural installation. I guess it's technically an installation. Uh, it, it's a seesaw with a double-sided stainless steel 
mirrored wall in between them with a little opening in between. And when children ride the seesaw through the opening, they can see each other. But when adults ride it, we just see a reflection of ourselves. And so the work is called Don't Grow Up, It's a Trap. And it's a permanent, well, Kins has probably already told you, but it's a permanent installation at the Karachi Zoo Park. And it was part of the Karachi Biennale that happened in it's November 2019, just now. And it was a phenomenal experience. I, I usually don't go to Karachi when I go to Pakistan. Like yourself, I go to Islamabad, Rawalpindi, I go to Lahore for art stuff. And then I go to my village in Babri Banda outside of Kohat. And, but that's still like, you know, that's a whole region of Pakistan that I, that I go and visit. Lahore is a completely different world. And then Karachi is a completely different world as well. I have so many friends from Karachi and I'm so connected to Karachi in that way. But I've only been a handful of times in my life. Same here, just so once or twice. It was like going to a new city, but because I know a lot of the artists and a lot of those people through art and Instagram, it was so amazing meeting a lot of them for the first time. Okay. So, uh, But I felt very welcomed and just felt very much a part of it. Uh, and uh, it, in that sense, it was, it was great. It makes me want to do more do more things in Pakistan. And then afterwards, going to my uh, ancestral village, Babri Banda, Pakistan, which is uh, completely different than mm-hmm. Karachi. And it's a completely different world. And, you know, you just, you literally change your clothes exactly. and you change the way you are, not inside, but just on some of the mannerisms and and just, you know, to th- there are norms within that culture. And I, and I, and I love the norms of that culture, there are also my norms too. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I love going there and spending time in the village and spending time with you know everybody in the village and all of that. That's that's also important. I'm an only son, so mm-hmm. for me, the connection to the village is, is very important. And you were also showing hujra, and again, my yeah. my parents' village, there is a hujra. I'm I'm so used to all of those terms, but you have to have context for it. Did you get any questions about you know hujra and all that you were showing? Oh sure, yeah. I, I so I, I post, uh, I was posting a fair amount in my Instagram stories, and people were asking questions. Of, all right, so what's this place here? What's going on? And then of course I have some of my. <laughs> so my friend's like, oh, so is that, is that where you guys hang out and plan the bomb attacks? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, but I would I, I would be explaining it to people and things. And so I probably had, I'm not kidding, about a dozen people who wanted to come visit Pakistan with me after those, really? uh, after those stories, really. Because people here are scared to visit Pakistan, they unfortunately. Know. They don't know. They yeah. don't know. I, and I, it, they don't know that the... The bomb attacks, uh, the bomb planning doesn't happen at the Hujra. Yeah. <laughs> it happens in the room behind, around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> There's another photo series that I want to talk to you about before we wrap up, and it's called A Suitable Girl. It's a satirical take on this like quintessential girl that every mother yeah, and son yeah, yeah. This, this is a Tariq Amin idea. Oh, really? Yeah. So he, so for those who don't know, Tariq Amin is. Pakistan is probably one of the most prominent, probably the most prominent hair and makeup artist. Well, like, there's like, you know, a handful. He's definitely up there and he's been around for, yeah. I, I used to go to him for a haircut. And this was like, I don't know why I would spend so much money as a college student and do that. Yeah, but I did that. He, he's like probably the most prominent, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's like yeah. a household name. So I was at a party with him. 
uh, one evening and he's like, I'm so sick and tired of all these women coming up and saying, Mujhe Kim Kardashian bana do. <laughs> he's like, make me look like Kim Kardashian. He's like, I swear, I want to just do a photograph. Even Kim Kardashian is not Kim Kardashian. Yeah. She's evolved and of transformed course, over years, right? She, she, yeah, yeah <laughs> she is. So he had this idea. He says, I really want to do a photo of my salon. And instead of, you know, a bride sitting there, I just want to have a blow-up doll sitting there. Yeah. And I was like, that's a great idea. That should be like, you know, you should you should do that. He's like, no, I can't. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm Tariq Amin. I can't do that. I said, do you mind if we do that? <laughs> and uh, he's like, yep, yeah, please by all means, go ahead and do something with it. So I left right after that, and I called Kinza. I'm like, hey, what do you think? And she's like, yes, let's do it. So then we explored that idea further, and Kinza connected with that idea as well. She herself was a suitable girl. And uh, so she found a, a connection with it too. So the two of us worked on it together, and we created these series of photographs with this amazing photographer, Morgan Miller, here in New York. And we shot these scenes and scenarios with this blow-up doll bride and the whole idea of, you know, she's this suitable girl, perfect for the South Asian home where she'll be taking care of her in-laws and her husband, but at the same time looking like Kim Kardashian and like all these pressures that, that they see parents put onto their daughters that is unnecessary. And it's unfortunate how pervasive this notion is, even in India and Bangladesh. Sure. And it's like the entire like subcontinent. But do you think... We give them difficult names and difficult burdens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so just leave them with difficult names. And this right yeah, there. just like Palvasha yeah. and that's it. Yeah. Uh, but do you think it's being like too harsh to judge society by its worst traits? As, as artists, it's our it's our job to, to show a mirror. Hmm. How would you describe a suitable girl, though, for, for audience to understand what does that mean? Oh, I, you know, in, in, in its... Uh, in its traditional yeah, context. Yeah, in traditional context. Not, not no, my no, idea no, of a suitable girl. No, 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 not girl. your idea. <laughs> okay. My idea of a suitable girl is Susie Afridi. Uh, but, um, but a suitable girl is a, is a, a well-educated girl <laughs> who has full college degree, master's degree, doctorate maybe, but she cannot study, but she cannot work as doctor. She must be housewife. And, uh, all right, I'll stop the accent. And so... <laughs> My she, daughter does uh, that. Highly, yes, my son does it, and he does it terribly. <laughs> and so she has to be highly educated, but will not use her degree in any way. She must come from a, a, a certain um, uh, dowry, or she must come from a certain type of family. And then the expectations of her are to serve, yeah. and uh, almost in a, in, in a geisha-like manner, you know, uh, and, and then to worship uh, her in-laws and her the ground that her husband works on, and I think you know this is also uh, we get a we're, we're subcontinental, so you know we 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 get a lot of this uh, from Indian culture as well, and it's just something that's that we've been raised with for generations. Do you think it's changing though? Do you see a change among? Uh, did, I, did I capture a suitable girl, though? Yeah, did I miss although, anything? Oh, you did, you did. What did age, I miss? Age. She, she, she cannot be past. You're like, right, you're right. Like 20, 22, 23. Yeah. <laughs> like, if she goes beyond that, she's That's already it. down. You're here. done, yeah. you're done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're past your prime. You're past your prime. And it's... So but I think our audience will relate to that as well, right? I mean, that's that, that's so different than I am. So I, I, I hear 27, 28-year-old girls like 
struggling with that themselves. They're like, oh my God, I'm 30. I haven't found somebody yeah. that, uh, you know, to, to, I haven't found the one. All my friends are getting married. So like, ah, this is a, a normal thing. I kind of hear it, right? And it's different for guys. It's completely different. But there's a, oh, th that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but yes, completely different. But this idea of pressure from the parents is the difference between how a 28-year-old ear feels versus a 28-year-old uh, in, in, in Pakistan, there's a much harder pressure because she's getting it from everybody mm -hmm. down to the, you know, the, 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 the guy at the, uh, at the store who, mm -hmm. who says, who, who literally, a lady at the store will ask you, are you married? In, in Pakistan, Pakistan it's everybody so is common. in everybody else's business. That's yeah. common. People can ask me questions like right. when my daughters go to Pakistan, our family asks them really crazy stuff and they are shocked. Right. And then my husband is, no, this is just part of our culture. It, it's okay. And sometimes I'm like, no, it's not So that's not the okay. burden of a suitable girl. Yeah, but and it starts early on. It starts at like, what, 17, 18? Uh, yeah, I would say earlier. Yeah. Yeah. My sister was told, I think... Um, at about 13 or 14, you know, that, yeah, when, uh, nothing, but yeah, just uh, not told anything bad. It's like, you know, when you get married, you know, it'll be like, it'll be like this, it'll be like that. And like, like the, the, the dream of the, the wedding and the, what your, what your role as a woman needs to be starts, I think, at uh, probably 13, 14, you know. And it is such an integral part of who we are as a society and how we define women. Wedding and marriage and family, it's like we don't talk about other issues as much. It's changing. There are many strong women out there right now who are changing this, and I love it. And I think it, it probably because now I see like women in my family who are in their late 20s and not yet married, like 10 years ago or even 15 years ago, that would have been a taboo, like not having been, like not getting married until 27 or 28 or even... Or not getting divorced. Um, or, or getting divorced. Yeah. yeah. Although in my household, it was so different. My... Or, or just being single and having a career and choosing to do that. Do they, Or do... choosing to not have kids and just... Yeah. And, 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 to, and to live your life. I think more and more women are doing that now. Yeah, but when I see Pakistani TV, I feel like everything is the same. Is it like, are we regressing in terms of our media outlets and depiction of who we are as a society? No, I think, I, I, I think Pakistan is becoming more and more woke every day. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. I, 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 I like to think that it's becoming more woke, that younger people are waking up to it, are realizing it, are calling it out, and this is where social media is great. Yeah. They're 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 calling out people's shit. Like we we, if you follow Mango Boz or anything, you know you you see it every day. There's always some guy who was caught on camera trying to tease a tease a girl or do something or say something inappropriate and all that stuff. And they're being called out left, right, and center. And it's not just a global thing. The Me Too movement really kind of woke the world up. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I I I think it is. And we see it now in rural Pakistan. It's very hard. Although I would think but, that people in rural Pakistan and in like upper class in Pakistan are more emancipated. It's our middle class that bears the burden of transmitting these traditions and facing all the um, that's fair. restrictions. Yeah, I, that's I honestly, fair. I think when I see women in, in my village, I feel like they are a lot more emancipated than I ever was. Yeah, that's true. They're they're doing man's work. Yeah, you know they they really are. Yeah, especially in Punjab. 
in Punjab. Yeah, there's uh, very. I see. I see that a lot in Punjab as well. I, less in KPK. Probably, for sure, yeah. Because uh, of just the the culture. So before we wrap up, where can we find your walk and your hawa chappals sandals? You can find my work on my website saxafridi.com or on my Instagram at sax underscore underscore, and you can find a link to the hawa sandals there as well. But you can also go to the Marhor website where you can acquire the chappals yourself. I think it's marhor.com slash hawa sandals. Or if you just go to the site and you go into the chapel section, you'll you'll definitely see it there. And you can learn about the story and the narrative of the chapels and uh, all of that. And before we end the interview, if you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Um, they're my jeans. They fit perfectly. Hmm. No complaints. I can complain about any place or any... I, I, yeah, I choose not to complain. Hmm. Thank you, Sax. This was wonderful. I had so much fun, and I'm glad we were able to do this finally. Me too. I'm. Uh, I'm still thinking about that last question. Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah. There's. Uh, that's. That's. Um, yeah, I'm gonna stick with my answer. Okay. <laughs> uh, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. 